Tonight's reading is Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions and the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Well, this summer we've been kind of playing a little imagination game, and I've asked you to just think a little bit about what it might look like for us if we were an urban monastery. And uh, we've been using this little definition that an urban monastery seeks the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. And we spent uh, six or eight weeks talking about hospitality. Now we're looking at this idea of being a school for the Lord's service and looking at Ephesians 4, 1 to 17 as a, kind of a blueprint for that school. And I've introduced each sermon with a little illustration from church history, uh, and we're trying to do more contemporary ones. This is a picture of a place in New York City called the Cloisters. Uh, in 1938, John Rockefeller and a number of philanthropists said, this place is crazy. Uh, what would it be like if we kind of imported from the old world, the old life, some traditions and rhythms and made them a part of the hustle and bustle of New York City. And so they did. They had the money to do it, and they did. And they patterned it after uh, a monastery in southern France near the Pyrenees and built uh, something called the Cloisters, which is now part of 
the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And one of the writers about it said, one can only imagine that these old spaces will provide new generations with a place of rest, contemplation, and conversation, just as they did for their original monastic inhabitants. Well, we've been wondering, you know, if we were that kind of an urban monastery, what what would a school for the Lord's service look like? And, And I've suggested that those five gifts, those five roles that Aaron read to us, uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, we might think of them as five faculty members in this school. But and we've been going through them one by one. But to do that well, I thought it might be good to step back and, 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 and think a little bit about the overall flow of the book of Ephesians and where this passage fits in it. Just to take a minute to do that. You know, the old saying, a text without a context is a proof text, is a good warning in any kind of Bible study. So let's just step back for a minute, and and you might want to read this at home if you're interested. Acts 19 describes the founding of the church of Ephesus, and it was wild. It's one of the, the most wild chapters in the whole book of Acts, which is filled with wild chapters. Uh, It starts off uh, in the synagogue. Paul goes into the synagogue. He starts to share with his fellow Jews for three months. Tensions become very high. They split. They don't want to follow the way, but some of them do, so they step out. He gathers those that do want to follow the way. Then he he runs into a fight with Jewish exorcists and magicians. Then tensions erupt with worshipers of the goddess Artemis. Somehow the church is established in two years amidst all this conflict and controversy, and Paul goes to Macedonia. So this letter is being written back to this church that was born in the midst of so much strife. And if you can imagine what a little church like this would have been, uh, you know, you had people who were coming out of Judaism that felt circumcision and the Sabbath and the dietary laws were critical. You had people coming out of paganism that didn't understand any of that. You had worshipers of the goddess of Artemis. You had people uh, coming out of uh, magic. And, and all of this were sitting in your living room. And so no surprise that the theme of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is unity. That's why he wrote the letter. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like one long run-on sentence in the Greek, um, and it's a little hard to pick up the overall flow, but that is the flow of the book of Ephesians. Uh, the first three chapters are about what God has done for all of them in Christ, and that's one of the things Christians need to think about, is that regardless of our theological views, our political views, or anything else, God has done the same thing for all of us in Christ. And the heart of Ephesians, in some ways, is Ephesians 2, 17. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So this is a book where he's saying to all these different kinds of people, I know you're very different. I know you probably want to kill each other. But actually, you're all one in Christ, and let's live as one family of God. Then chapters 4, 5, and 6 instruct the struggling church in how to live out this unity. And that's the passage that we're in. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he talks about walking in unity, walking in 
love. Four to six, he talks about that unity being grounded in the unity of God. Uh, And then seven, eight, and nine, and ten, he talks about Christ resurrecting and giving gifts to the church. And then in 11, he starts to lay out what those gifts are. The, the, The key person in this whole passage is in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So God gives, Christ gives these gifts to the body, which is struggling to be one, to help them grow, to help them be one in Christ, so that they can glorify God in the world. So we're going back and looking at these different roles in the body. Last week we looked at the apostle, and we suggested that that, we might think of that person as a kingdom entrepreneur. And we're going to spend the next two weeks on the prophet. And the reason why is, is there are so many more verses on, on the prophet than any other role in Scripture. And it's not, honestly, it is not that easy to understand what the Bible means when it talks about a prophet. Uh, there are different views by very wise Christians. Some uh, think that a prophet is someone who focuses on the end times and prophesies about the end of the world. Uh, the problem with that is actually very little prophecy in the Bible is about the end of the world. Some see a prophet as a powerful preacher or teacher, but the problem with that is Paul talks about prophets and teachers as if they had a different kind of role. Some think that a prophet is, uh, is someone who can speak powerfully into your life sharing supernatural insight. And while that may be true, that leaves out a broader social aspect of prophecy. Someone who calls, uh, someone, other people think that, that a prophet is much more oriented towards social causes. But that leaves out the more interpersonal, intimate aspect of policy, prophecy. And then there are other questions. Um, one of the big ones is, is the gift of prophecy still at use in the church today? Uh, good Christians disagree on this, have for a long time. Uh, won't go into the arguments for that. And if, if, you, uh, if you think that that gift has ceased and it's not for today, you know, then you got to pass for the next two weeks. <laughs> you can look at your phone or something. Uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it is. Um, I wrote a very long and boring chapter in my book, The Word Empowered Church, on why I think the gifts are for today. And uh, you can get it for 99 cents on Amazon. Um, and I will email you a PDF of those arguments if, if you're interested in why I think these gifts are for today. I'll tell you, though, what cinched it for me was when I was in graduate school at UT, one semester I spent uh, four months on the third floor of Hodges, hours each week uh, in the stacks with a big, uh, it's called the, the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And it's this dusty tomes of all the writings of the church fathers. And I just looked up what they had to say about prophecy. And what I found was it was very active in the early church in the first two or three centuries. Uh, The Didache was an early Christian document. uh, Describes a Christian community that welcomes prophets but suspicious of them. The Shepherd of Hermas talks about testing prophets. Justin Martyr, Eusebius, and Tertullian all refer to prophetic ministry active in their churches. So uh, I, I really do think this is a gift that is... Uh, active in our church today. But if it is, what's the difference between Old Covenant prophecy and New Covenant prophecy? 
And then how do you test prophecy and not sink into a swamp of subjectivism and get away from the primacy of Scripture? So um, these are very challenging questions, and I won't answer all of them. Okay. Um, I thought this week what I'd do is i say, you know, I'm going to go back and look up every word in the Bible, every word of prophet or prophesy in the Bible. Uh, And then I started, and... uh, I realized there were several hundred, um, and I did not get done. Uh, I looked at a whole lot of them, though. And you know, by the way, that a Bible dictionary doesn't come from heaven. There's no way to download the meaning of prophet. There's not a key in the back of this in Greek, right? So anybody that puts together a dictionary goes through the Bible and looks how a word is used in context and then suggests a meaning. That's where you start. And so I decided not to really look at any other books for this other than the Bible and try to come up with a working definition. And here's my working definition. It's as good as I can do, and I encourage you to improve on it because it's not perfect at all. A prophet is a man or woman moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words that align people with God's will. And Rocky, I was singing too hard with Matt. and I lost a little bit of my voice, so if you could give me a little extra juice. Thanks. Okay, a man or woman moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words that align people with God's will. That's when I, when I looked at all the verses on prophecy I could look at, that was the definition that I came up with. Um, and let's just kind of work through it bit by bit, and we'll go a little deeper into this next week. First of all, this idea of prophet. In Hebrew language, there were three different words for prophet. The first one meant seer. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 18, the prophets stand in the counsel of the Lord and deliver his message. So they see things that God is doing. The second word means visionary, someone who sees a vision and reports it. That's what the book of Amos is. The third word means called one. And so it's someone God calls to bring a divine message to his people. In the Greek, there's just one word. It just means to speak forth or declare the mind of God. Sometimes it's about the future, but more often it's about a particular person or situation. So let's start with that first phrase. A prophet is a man or a woman. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, and Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And there's a number of examples of both men and women prophesying. So yeah, let's just leave that up there, and we'll work through it. Now, the next part of the definition is where it gets a little more nuanced. Moved by the Holy Spirit. What, what do we mean there? I'm going to take you through just a couple of verses. Uh, one of the first places we run into in the Old Testament where we see prophecy at work, Numbers 11.25 with Moses. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. And then we see something happening with Saul, 1 Samuel 10.10. The Spirit of God rushed upon him and he prophesied. And there's a number of examples in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes on a person and they speak a word for God. Now, 
that apparently only happens to a few people in the Old Covenant. Uh, What happens in the New Covenant when every believer receives the Spirit at conversion? Well, we we see a similar pattern here. Uh, Acts 13.1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. So you see the same thing happening. The prophet comes in, they're worshiping. The Holy Spirit speaks through the prophet on the inspiration of the Spirit. Acts 19.6, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And then probably the most extensive little passage where we see this is 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 7-11. Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In the Greek, it's phanereo, and the tense of it is that this is something that is happening in real time. It's happening in that moment. It's an expression of the Spirit as the community gathers for worship. What happens in the midst of the community? To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So uh, this is uh, the Holy Spirit moves upon a man or a woman in Christ and, and, and prompts them to speak, prompts them to share a word. And, and I think there's a couple of things that we might think about here. Uh, prophets then are likely to be people, they're just gifted in a way that they're especially attuned to the voice of the Spirit. And, and we all know people like this, and you may not be a person like this. And it's very important not to compare. We tend to idealize certain kinds of spirituality. And I have this conversation in my office almost as, many, as much as any other where someone will come in and say, you know, I know walking with God is supposed to look like this, but it doesn't look like that for me. What's wrong with me? And I think it's because we hold up the people that hear in a certain way and prophets hear in a certain way. But most of us don't hear that way and it's, it's okay. But prophets do. In terms of their personality type, they're often more introverted and intuitive. So on the Myers-Briggs, if that test, you'd be a, an IN in the first parts, normally. Uh, they're open and receptive to the more mystical dimensions of the faith. They're often more sensitive to the reality of the spirit world. And often this is both a blessing and a curse for them. Now, let's look at the next part. We've said prophets are men and women who are moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words that align people to God's will. Now, what what might that look like? Let's go back to the Old Covenant. Remember, in the Old Testament, more books are under the title of prophet than any other. There's four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, 12 minor ones. And they are like covenant lawyers. God makes a covenant with Israel. Israel promises to keep it. When they forget their promise, God sends the prophets to remind them that they are a covenant people. And here is just one of dozens of examples from Micah. 
chapter 6. This is something that the prophets are doing all the time. They're saying, this is who you are, this is what you should be doing, but you've forgotten. And I'm going to pick it up uh, in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. So what is the prophet doing there? He's saying, look, you've forgotten who you are. Your worship means nothing. You've forgotten justice. You've forgotten uh, to to worship the true God. You've pursued idols. Come back. That's what we see prophets doing in the Old Covenant. Now, here is, I think, the most difficult uh, question about the gift of prophet. How does the ministry of prophet change in the New Covenant? Well, in some ways, the ministry of the prophet, I think, stays the same in the New Covenant. They're still there to call the church to align with God's will. And bear with me on this just a minute. I know this is kind of technical tonight, but it is Labor Day. You're off tomorrow, so you'll be all right. Um, when, When Luke was writing about prophets in Acts, when Paul was writing about prophets in the epistles, they were living in a Hebrew world mentally, right? They weren't thinking, well, I'm a New Covenant believer now, or actually right now I'm writing the fourth letter of the New Testament. No, 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 they just were Jews who were following the Messiah and trying to get others to do the same. And so when, when Paul uses the word prophet or Luke uses the word prophet, there's no asterisk that says, hey, by the way, this is not the Old Testament prophet. No, he's just using it the same way, and his readers, who at first were mostly Hebrew Christians, or would have understood it the same way. So... The prophet in the early church community would have had a very similar function. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation is essentially one long prophetic apologue. <laughs> I'm not going to try to say that word. Um, you know what I mean. It's a long vision. How about that? Written in the style of the book of Daniel. Now, here are two examples from the church fathers that illustrate, I think, that this gift was functioning in a similar way. This is from the church father Irenaeus. He says, Some in our churches have foreknowledge of things to be, and visions and prophetic speech, and they speak through the Spirit with all manner of tongues, and who bring the hidden things of men into clearness for the common good. Tertullian. We too have attained the prophetic gift in our churches. We have among us a sister who experiences the Spirit by ecstatic vision amidst the sacred rites of the Lord's day, in the church. So these are more Hebrew ways of expressing the the prophetic gift. Now, in other ways, the ministry of the prophet is different under the new covenant. And I'd like to identify three. First, under the new covenant, everyone is urged to prophesy, 1 Corinthians 14.1. And under the old covenant, very few prophesy. Secondly, Under the new covenant, Christ has permanently borne the curse of the law for us. So prophecy puts a stronger emphasis on grace. We need to remember that. This is, uh, I've seen prophecy really wreck churches. And this is one of the reasons why 
is when we forget that there's an enormous difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Galatians 2.10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now that is so, 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 so important. That means under the Old Covenant, God's people were still being punished and bearing the curse for violating the law. They looked to Christ. Christ fulfilled that. On this side, under the new covenant, our our righteousness before God is based on his obedience, not ours. And so every prophetic word that comes must come out of grace. This is so important. Uh, I went probably eight years without coming anywhere near the prophetic. Because it got loose in a ministry that I was in, and it got so bad that I felt like God was sitting on the roof of our church saying, you have done something terrible, I'm going to judge you, but you have to guess what you did. How's that for healthy? No thanks. No, th- I'd rather no prophecy than that. So let's remember that it, it, it's a new covenant gift and it's different now. 1 Corinthians 14.3 describes it. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That's the norm for the prophetic now. It's encouragement and comfort, calling people to align with God's will. I still think, we're going to talk about this next week, there is a place for correction and warning and rebuke, but it comes out of grace. The third thing I'd say is that Prophets have less authority in the New Covenant than they did in the Old Covenant. Prophets in the Old Covenant wrote Scripture. Uh, New Covenant prophets do not. Paul says things like, test the prophets, weigh their words, get together, discern what's going on against Scripture. And in the Old Covenant, you see things like, if he's wrong, stone him. It's a a little higher stakes. Uh, I, for one, would not be prophesying much if there was like a one-strike-your-stoned rule. Uh, so it's, it's different. Uh, the primacy of Scripture is here now, and all things are to be tested by Scripture. Um, so th- there is a sense in which the prophetic word has less authority. Now, we're almost done. Uh, what forms do prophetic words come in? Uh, Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, puts it like this. A prophet is a poet artistically playful, imaginal, unaccredited, with no prophetic training, without social authority, emotionally bold, naming things the way they are, eruptive, full of elusive metaphors and images, alarming, casting issues of fidelity and infidelity in your face, beyond control, abrasive, imagining God's incredible freedom, opening, opening, opening. Now now he's writing about the Old Testament. And so I would suggest that some of that should be modified by grace but in the New Testament, but, but he's got the idea. So we see prophets coming to us in visions, dreams, prophetic acts, speaking in tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. All of it kind of comes together. Now, broadly speaking, I'd boil it down to two ways prophets work. Prophets speak words encouraging the whole church to align with God's will. And we're going to look at that next week. And then prophets speak words encouraging individuals personally to align with God's will. 
And in my experience, this is the more normative way that the prophetic ministry functions in the body of Christ today. It's, uh, it's that 1 Corinthians 4.3, to encourage, to say, hey, in this situation, I think God is doing this to move you over here. Or in this situation, in this context, this is something God wants you to know to prepare you for what's coming next. It's very much situation-specific. Uh, I think of two examples. Um, one of you wrote me, uh, at the start of the summer, a certain person in the church told me that she'd been praying for me and she felt like God had given her the phrase, quote, you were born to fly, unquote, for me. This was right at the time I was getting ready to move to a new house and to tell my boss I was ready to move to a new job, and all I had felt was anxiety. The phrase was helpful as I tried to trust God more deeply and relax my hold on what was comfortable but not necessarily best for me. And I've seen many, many examples like that, uh, where God just kind of comes into your personal situation and ministers to you, gives you a little encouragement, gives you some guidance, gives you some direction. Um, something similar happened to me this uh, Thursday. Thursday morning, I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and a uh, certain person's on my mind, and I'm thinking I need to somehow pray for them or meet them or that they have a word or that I have a word for them, that there's some kind of a connection that needs to happen there, uh, but I don't have any reason to contact them. And I just said, Lord, you're going to have to work this out. I'm not going to bother them. Uh, it was my day off. I was running some errands. I was in a part of town I'm not normally in. I was on a street off the main beaten path that I'd never been on before uh, in, a, in a driveway uh, behind a shop. And this person, <laughs> who I had been praying about at 2 in the morning, uh, uh, pulls up in her car. And I'm like, well, sometimes pastors don't say the purest things when they're, <laughs> when they're shocked. So I won't tell you what I thought to myself. But I was very shocked uh, that, that this, what on earth? Well, to make a long story short, this person had a word for me. She had no idea what I was doing there that day. And the word was directly related to a direction about something I'd been praying about just before she almost hit me with her car. Um, so there's two examples. Now, what's the difference between someone who prophesies and a prophet? Well, a prophet in a community is someone who's recognized by the body as having this gift after a long and fruitful period of service. You know, friends, we do not want self-appointed prophets. That's a bad thing. Um, and I've run into plenty of those. And usually they don't stay around long. And if you don't stay around long, this was, it's interesting. In the first century, they read the church fathers, this was their problem. Is that the prophets would kind of bounce from place to place, and you didn't really get to know their character. That's bad. Uh, you want to trust somebody who's living in community with you, and you know the fruits of their life. Also, they equip others to cultivate this gift in their own lives and ministry. That's a prophet. Many of us can prophesy. But a prophet is someone who has a long track record of faithfulness and an equipping orientation of the body of Christ. And my observation is that we have a few people walking, you know, kind of as prophets in our body after many years, and, and, and many with emerging prophetic giftings. So you may be a prophet if you are especially attuned to the spirit world, you are sensitive to strong impressions of the spirit, you receive words from God for others, 
You sometimes feel lonely and misunderstood and wish you didn't have this crummy gift. You sometimes seem to have supernatural insight into a situation. Prophets get into trouble when they isolate, take themselves too seriously, forget their role and try to make sure what they say happens. By the way, that's a whole other sermon, but that's key to this, that if you get kind of a prophetic word, you share it with the person or the leader, and then you let it go. You get into big trouble, but then you, you get all mad because they didn't do it the way that you thought that they should do it. Uh, prophets get into trouble when they become judgmental and proud, and when they don't hold themselves accountable to others in the word. So, Taryn, would, would you and Tim come up? Tim has been kind of growing in this ministry under the ministry of a, a prophet. Um, so, just, do you want the stand or? Okay. So uh, some of you may know Mark Pate, uh, for example. He's been here for a long time, and he, uh, he's been leading a lot of the Monday night prayer group um, for nine or ten years, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and we tried to, to get him in here, but he's out of town for work, and, uh, and we actually tried videoing him, but that, uh, the video became corrupted, so <laughs> we, uh, we couldn't get him, get, get him in here. But Tim uh, has been, uh, I guess you'd say in some ways, discipled by him. He's been, been part of the Monday night group for a long time. And it's gotten a lot, of, a lot from him. Um, so I've asked him to come along and say both what he's experienced as well as, uh, as, well as some of what he's, what he's witnessed of that. Um, but, uh, but a couple things Mark did have to say that I remember from, from when we did the interview. Um, he did, did say that one of the things you need to make sure with this ministry is, is actually the giving and releasing. Getting, getting the word but then actually releasing it to the leader or to the person and saying, okay, it's on the Holy Spirit, between the Holy Spirit and them at that point and not trying to make it. Um, make it happen. Um, one thing I'll say about this too is it's helpful to think about this role in terms of, of, of an alerter and an appraiser kind of kind of function. Um, so uh, rather than thinking of it as 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 distinctly directive, um, but uh, and also uh, mentioned last week too a little bit about thinking of these in terms of sequence: the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, rather than thinking of it in terms of hierarchy. So the apostle should be able to come alongside you uh, in the early days of getting of moving in your ministry to help lay foundations and culture, and then the prophet comes along and says, "Okay, now let me help you align and learn, help you learn how to align to God's activity, His now activity, His will, His heart, His uh, the things that He's doing." Um, and so, uh, so I wanted wanted Tim to be able to kind of give us a couple of examples of uh, how he's seen both on a corporate level and on a personal level uh, this role help to uh, help us to see and hear. So to be clear, what you know he's saying is Mark is the one in this role and I'm someone who has been you know involved in you know participating and receiving his ministry for you know nine years now and um, so in one of the ways it works is that there's a teaching element so that, well, so first of all, let me start with, you know, the whole purpose of what we do on Monday nights and, you know, ideally anywhere, but specifically with that is drawing near to the Father heart of God, right? And so there's this element of teaching, well, how do you do that? Because all this other stuff has got to flow from that first. And so uh, there's a teaching in how to rest in the presence of God, how to, um, you know, listen to the voice of the Lord those kind of things to know, you know, because that's got to be the foundation for everything else, right? Uh, and so there's 
a teaching element, and then there's a practicing with oversight element, um, and then there is a encouraging an encouragement of um, exercising, you know, the gifts that may have been called out in you, or you know, the things you're learning about with oversight. Yeah, so could you maybe give just a little bit of an example of what that's meant for you personally, uh, experiencing that environment? Okay. Um, so sort of on a personal level, you know, sometimes it gets hard to differentiate because, you know, you do something so long you forget that's where, you know, it started. But um, because it's an entire, like, shaping of thinking and shaping of, you know, how you see the world a lot of times. Um, but one of the ways that I like to think about it is that it feels like there's a lot more, I have a lot more tools in my tool belt, and sort of my spiritual tool belt, if you will, than I otherwise would had I not been, you know, involved. And so there are certain, you know, ways of, you know, again, so when you're starting with drawing close to God first, you know, anytime you're entering into something or you say you're part of an organization, you know, listen to what God's trying to do there uh, and then do that rather than decide what you're going to do and then ask God to bless it or, you know, whether that's on a corporate level or an individual level. Uh, and so, you know, praying like that um, or, um, I, I don't know, give me, remind me what I'm, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that's, a lot of that's really helpful to see that there's, this role can function in a lot of ways to help us by providing context within which to try and, and experience the gifts like this ourselves and how to help call those things forward and align us to not just help us align to God's will, but also help us to learn to see and hear for ourselves in, in ways that are, yeah. So, um, yeah, and just, just a last reminder again, big difference is that remember that dashboard light, right? So if you're, if you're wondering, hey, is this me? Think about whether or not you've got that dashboard light every day you wake up that's blinking at you that says, what is the state of the body? How is the health of the body? Is there some way that I could help the body hear or see more or align better? And if that's there, then that's a good clue. If that's not there, then you may need to be thinking about like, okay, well, how do I need to access this role in order to grow in the ministry that God's given me? Because he's given all of us one. So, I think we're, yeah, we're done. Thank you. Did you have one thing you wanted to add, Tim? Uh, well, just with what he was saying towards the end, like the final part being that, um, you know, part of the teaching as well is teaching to do that so that to exercise these gifts. And so if he's, you know, sort of the prophet in this role, then teaching how to minister to others and pray for others, that kind of thing. Thank you. Well, next week... Um, we're going to look at the, the more social role of the prophet. And uh, I know a number of you are very motivated and serve in that way. I think of a number of you are out here today. I think of Jane and a, and a number of others. And, and I'm going to ask uh, Jana Morgan, uh, whose writing and research is very much, uh, we've had some fascinating conversations about this, her whole calling as a scholar is connected to this gift. And uh, Chantel is uh, my co-teacher with the fellows and with Mary Terry, who's a guest and friend back there. And Mary, I think, would have this gift too. And uh, we're teaching a course on race and the Bible. And uh, Chantel has this incredible capacity to take a room with a lot of nervous white people and a couple of nervous black people, and somehow create this table 
where we talk about these very hard things and gently understand ways that the body of Christ has perhaps moved away from God's will and needs to come back. It's just, it's, it's beautiful to watch. I'm humbled to be a part of it. And so next week they're going to do that. Two Sundays from now, my son's getting married. Uh, so Daryl Arnold is going to come. And uh, here's, a, here's your quiz. Which of the five is Daryl? Daryl is the pastor at Overcoming Believers Church. And I'd love to kind of see what you, what you think there. So, and only Jesus is all five. That's not, not, a, not a good answer. Okay. <laughs> the Lord be with you.